This is Quotations, a podcast about words, written and spoken throughout history. If you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, we shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. No matter where you're from, your dreams are valid. The Pale Blue Dot, the only home we've ever known. Hello and welcome to Quotations. I'm Matthew Monroe. Here's today's quote. We are going to die, and that makes us the lucky ones. Most people are never going to die because they're never going to be born. The potential people who could have been here in my place, but who will in fact never see the light of day, outnumber the sand brains of Sahara. Certainly those unborn ghosts include greater poets than Keats, scientists greater than Newton. We know this because the set of possible people allowed by our DNA so massively outnumbers the set of actual people. In the teeth of these stupefying odds, it is you and I, in our ordinariness, that are here. That is evolutionary biologist, author, and dare I say, based on that quote, at least part-time philosopher Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins was born March 26, 1941, in Nairobi, Kenya. And today's quote comes from his book, Unweaving the Rainbow. And obviously, I really like today's quote, and I'll tell you more about why in a little bit. But first, how about a little bit about Richard Dawkins himself? So, as I mentioned, he was born in Nairobi, which is now in Kenya, but was then, at the time, a British colony or protectorate of Kenya, and sometimes known as British Kenya or British East Africa. The nation we now know as Kenya became independent on December 12, 1963, and a republic exactly one year later. Dawkins came from a well-to-do family and was born with the first name Clinton, which he later legally discarded. And he attended Balliol College, where he studied zoology and eventually earned a doctorate degree in philosophy in 1966. This later became a doctorate in science in 1989. And he's the author of numerous papers on myriad topics, including his zoological pedigree, but also evolution and both human and animal behavior. And he's taught at both UC Berkeley and at Oxford, where he now serves as an emeritus fellow and has since 2008. Dawkins is well known among the non-biologically trained as an outspoken critic of religion and believes the existence of God ought to be treated not as a fact, but rather as a scientific hypothesis like any other. And for those that don't have a formal education in science and don't remember back to their high school physics or chemistry class or biology class where this was probably last spoken about, a hypothesis from a scientific perspective is an idea or a proposition that can be tested through observation and experiment in the natural world. And importantly, an oft-overlooked requirement of a true scientific hypothesis is that it must also be falsifiable. And falsifiable is not a term that's tossed about in most colloquial uh, conversation. So we'll talk about it for just a brief moment here. But falsifiability is a key tenant of the scientific method. Essentially, a hypothesis in our case, God is real, is a valid hypothesis if it can be logically contradicted by an empirical test. An empirical test is just a directly observable test using existing techniques. So the classic example of this is all swans are white. 
right? That might be our hypothesis in this case. All swans are white. You've probably seen a swan before. They have that orange bill, beautiful white feathers. They can be a little aggressive, but there's a hypothesis that says all swans are white. Well, this is falsifiable through the observation with our own eyes and existing technology that there are indeed black swans. And there really are. I've seen them myself. Therefore, the hypothesis that all swans are white is a valid hypothesis, even though it's actually false, because it can be, and in this case is, falsified by the existence of a swan of any other color, in this case black. So, all swans are white is falsifiable because we can observe in the natural world with existing technology, in this case our own eyes, that there are swans of other colors. Therefore, even if it is an incorrect hypothesis, from a scientific perspective, it is a valid hypothesis because it is falsifiable. And there's a whole rabbit hole that we can go down here, and I fear we may have already gone too far. But consider falsifiability, and definitely research it more than just via this podcast for a, a deeper understanding of hypothesis generation and validity. You can really go down quite the educational rabbit hole with that particular topic. So again, back to Dawkins, many of his comments have been viewed as inflammatory, and for that reason, he's a polarizing individual. But that's okay. As I've said before, valuable words have the potential to flow from the mouths and fingers of even the worst human beings, though I'd hardly classify Dawkins as oh, the worst kind of human being. And we've covered various people before, and I won't go into that again, but we've talked about that. It does not matter necessarily from where the source originates, as long as the words are good. And as I mentioned, today's quote comes from Dawkins' book, Unweaving the Rainbow, Science, Delusion, and the Appetite for Wonder, which he published in 1998. In it, Dawkins explores the relationship between art and science from the scientist's perspective and pushes back hard against the idea that art and science are these non-overlapping circles in this would-be Venn diagram of life. And we've all experienced this, haven't we? Who hasn't heard something described as both an art and a science? Right? We've all heard that term before. In fact, one of my favorite topics, and you all know this, leadership, is often described this way. It may, in fact, have been the first thing that jumped to your mind when I said art and science. But parenting, sports, and cooking, even, all fall into this broad description as well. And Dawkins would argue little, if anything, is purely one or the other. And he does so far more eloquently than I can and in far more pages than I can than I could write. But this quote comes early in the book, and it frames much of the rest of it. So, let's listen to it again, so that you can hear these poetic prose, one might say both artful and scientific prose, in their presentation from the author himself. Here's the quote. We are going to die, and that makes us the lucky ones. Most people are never going to die because they're never going to be born. The potential people who could have been here in my place, but who will in fact never see the light of day, outnumber the sand grains of Sahara. Certainly those unborn ghosts include greater poets than Keats, scientists greater than Newton. We know this because the set of possible people allowed by our DNA so massively outnumbers the set of actual people. teeth of these stupefying odds, it is you and I, in our ordinariness, that are here. 
Now, it's important to note that this quote is part of a much longer introduction in the book, which is in its entirety also worth reading and listening to. And I'll post a link to the YouTube recording of the longer intro, but I would strongly encourage you to just read the entire book as it's an excellent read. And Dawkins covers a lot in this quote, and there's a lot to dissect here, but I want to describe a little bit of what he talks about after I cut this quote off. And in the longer quote, Dawkins describes a spacecraft fired from a planet as a sort of species insurance program. You've probably heard this talked about, I believe Elon Musk has referred to, you know, the the preservation of our species by expanding to other planets, namely Mars. That that is the only way that our species will survive the coming years, decades, centuries, millennia. And Dawkins talks about this as well in his book, long before Musk brought this concept to the forefront of, of the zeitgeist, as it were. But he talks about a spaceship that is sent out into space from a planet. Pick any planet anywhere. It doesn't matter. It has life on it. Maybe it's Earth. Maybe it's not. And it's got cryogenically frozen explorers or sleeping colonists, as it were, from this planet that are sent out in into the universe in search of a planet that's supportive of life. And now a planet that's supportive of life would need, at least human life, would need to be a lot like Earth itself. It would need water, it would need air, breathable air, and it would need some source of heat, but not too much, like our sun, at just the right distance in order to support these travelers. There are other ways that human beings could survive, other sources of heat. Perhaps there's an internal source of heat on this on this planet. Who knows? Either way, the likelihood of finding one of these is very unlikely. The most optimistic predictions put the odds of such a planet as about one in a million. And there are many, many billions of potential candidate planets. So finding the one in a million is very, very difficult. And let's assume, and this is not an unreasonable assumption, that even with the, sp- the fastest spacecraft that you could imagine, and the technological ability to fire that spacecraft out into space for a seemingly unending amount of time, Assume it took years to go from planet to planet, searching for a potential one that was supportive and friendly towards human life. Given all those factors, the fact that there's a limited speed at which this thing can travel, the fact that planets are exceptionally far apart, the likelihood that a spacecraft ever finds and deposits its travelers is infinitesimally small. But, as Dawkins points out, it's not zero. They could find a planet and they could colonize it. But, Dawkins goes on to say that this scenario, in this case, assumes too much luck, as he puts it, and it would never happen. But that is, in a sense, precisely what had to happen for us, you and I, to be here right now. Now, granted, we didn't arrive by spaceship, but the odds of us being here are so small that it's comparable. Well, how small, you might ask? Well, that brings me to a fact that I think about probably entirely too often. Definitely, definitely far too often. And it's from a post from a while back on a website called Lyrical Zen. And it's it's referred to, and you might have seen screenshots of it or presentations of it in another way, it's called Ancestral Mathematics. If that rings a bell, you've seen what I'm about to describe. But imagine, it's a chart, and it starts with a statement at the top that says, In order to be born, you needed, and then a colon. And then it goes on to list two parents. Everybody needs two parents. You need the biological mixing of X and Y chromosomes to create who you are today. So it starts with two parents. 
those two parents each needed two parents, so that's four grandparents. Each of those grandparents also needed two parents, so that's eight great-grandparents, and then 16 great-great-grandparents, and so on and so on, and it goes through 12 generations. And in case you're curious, that's 2,048 ninth great-grandparents, and covers a span, 12 generations, covers a span, roughly, give or take, of about 400 years. So the year now is 2022. We're talking about 2,048 people back around-ish the year 1622 needed to do exactly what they did in order for you to be here today. Listening to me speak, you actually required a lineage, right? Because that's 2,048 people 400 years ago. If you sum up all of the generations since then that brought you to today, including your parents, that's a total of 4,094 people. So 4,094 people over the course of 400 years had to do, and I mean this with all the sincerity I can muster, exactly what they did. Every single moment of every single day for their entire lives for you to exist at all. And so too with me, and so too with the person you just passed on the street, and the person that you're looking at across the table, every single one of those people required 4,094 people over 400 years to do exactly what they did every single day for their entire lives. And that nearly, literally, blows my mind. So much so that I don't actually think this can be overstated, so I'm going to hit it a little bit harder. If one of your I don't know, let's pick seventh great-grandmothers, so we're talking about 300, 300 plus years ago, didn't go to the corner market on her 7,305th day of existence, which is roughly her 20th birthday. She might not have bumped into a man departing the same market and began a connection, which ended up with them procreating one of your sixth great-grandfathers who himself had to trod a razor-thin path to continue that chain. And I mean this wholeheartedly, without which you would not exist. Period. Full stop. That could be the whole podcast. That is enough there. I could just leave you with that little brain melter, and we could reconvene next week and do this whole thing all over again. But I think you know that I'm not going to do that to you. So try to recover quickly from that as we look into this quote just a little bit more. Some more mind-blowing math is coming your way for those of you that care to know. In the quote, Dawkins mentions that there are more people that could have been here instead of him than there are grains of sand in the Sahara. And oftentimes we use grains of sand to describe things that are really, really hard to quantify, right? That there are more grains of sand on Earth than there are stars in the galaxy or in the universe. That could very well be the case. There's a lot of debate about it. You can read some interesting articles about it. I may or may not have in preparation for this podcast. But I found myself wondering, okay... It's really, really hard to quantify the fact that there are 8-ish billion people on the planet right now. And I wonder, as probably some of you have, how many people have ever lived on planet Earth? And of course, that's an impossible number to know precisely, but the general, the general consensus is it's about 107 billion people. So roughly 13 or 14 times what we currently have on the planet today. And that's over the course of the entirety of human existence for as many years back as it goes. 
And so I found myself wondering, well, 107 billion is really hard to picture, right? It's really hard to imagine what 107 billion of, well, anything is, except for something relatively small, but not microscopic. Okay, maybe grains of sand. So I found myself wondering, what does 107 billion grains of sand look like? So, being the uh, <clears throat> nerd that I am, I went and did a little bit of research. Turns out that in about a cubic inch of sand, there are about 9,800 individual grains of sand. So if you blow that up, you divide that 9,800 into 107 billion, and you do the volumetric conversions, it turns out that a cube, roughly 19, 18 and a half or so feet on a side, would contain enough grains of sand to represent every single person that ever lived on this planet. That was a little bit hard for me to wrap my head around. I don't really know of any 18 and a half foot on a side cubes that I can picture. So I did a little bit of converting again, and I found out that an average swimming pool, above ground picture, circular above ground swimming pool, about five feet deep. That's actually probably a little deeper than most above ground swimming pools, but it's my podcast, so it's five feet deep. So picture a five foot deep round swimming pool with a diameter of about 20 feet. That shouldn't be hard. That's roughly the size of most above ground swimming pools, or at least one you've probably been in or seen at some point. If you filled that swimming pool with sand instead of water, there would be approximately 107 billion grains of sand in that pool. That represents the number of people that have ever lived on this earth, roughly, right? This is all approximate. What Dawkins is saying is that there are more potential people that could have been here instead of him than that pool and probably a million other pools full of grains of sand because there are certainly more grains of sand than that in the Sahara. And he's not wrong. He is not exaggerating here. This is a very real possibility. Change one small thing about your DNA, or one small thing about any of those 400, or excuse me, any of those 4,000 plus people that had to do what they did in order for you to be here, and you're not here. Someone else is instead. So that's why the quote starts out with the phrase, we're all going to die, and that makes us the lucky ones. Because unlike the rest of them that were never born, we actually have the opportunity to live and observe this world, this solar system, this galaxy, and this universe for a tiny fraction of time before we go. And Dawkins elaborates more fully on this by stating that we are, for all the numerical alignment that has brought us here, exceedingly ordinary. Nearly all of us. Those unborn include people who would have or could have been far better than the best of us, never mind you and I. Maybe just me. I shouldn't, I shouldn't say that. Maybe you're the amazing person that is the exception to that rule. And that's not a knock on us, right? But instead, it's an attempt to reframe our perspective. And Carl Sagan does this as well. And you know, we've done an episode by him, and you hear his voice at the beginning of every episode in the, in the intro music. But he does this as well with his pale blue dot monologue, from which that quote is taken. He provides a perspective that all the world wars, all the world's wars and deaths as a result of those wars have been to control one tiny corner temporarily of a small pale blue dot in our solar system in our tiny corner of the universe. And that monologue and this quote should change the way we see the world around us. It's very easy to be very ego and self-centric about what goes on in the world. Things happen to us. The world happens around us. It's very self-centric. And 
what Dawkins is saying and what Sagan said in his quote is that we are exceedingly, improbably lucky to be here. Any domino in that chain could have failed to fall as it did for literally countless others. And poof, no map, no podcast, nothing. But yet here we are, and we should sense better now our own fragility, our own uniqueness, and the temporariness amongst the living that we, that we have. And so let that permeate not into just your mind, but into your bones today, listener. I mean, really, really let it, let it seep in there. Maybe when this podcast is over, don't hit next. Don't autoplay the next podcast. Don't take your earbuds out or your headphones off. But just stand there or sit there or continue to walk in silence for just a moment longer and attempt to digest the implications of what we're talking about here. And then, to quote someone else that we've done an episode about, Brett McKay from The Art of Manliness, put what you've heard into action. I'll leave the how up to you. Until next time, I'm Matthew Monroe. This is Quotations, and thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please subscribe in your favorite podcast app or visit me at quotationspod.com to download and listen. Please also take a moment to recommend the podcast to a friend. That's a huge help. You can tweet at me at quotationspod. Send me an email to quotationspod at gmail.com. Find me on Instagram at quotationspod or join the conversation on Facebook at quotationspod. I look forward to hearing from you, welcome your feedback, and thanks as always for listening.